today's passage will be Luke 22, verse 7 through 20. Then came the day of the unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Good morning. I'm really full right now. Not because I ate fried chicken for breakfast, but last night I got to be at a dinner with Congresswoman Barbara Lee and Ambassador Andrew Young, who used to be the ambassador to the UN and who did all the civil rights marches with Martin Luther King. And so my head is just buzzing with all this stuff. And then I got to attend Barbara Lee and Elihu Harris's lecture series. Last night was the last one, and so I had these front row seats with other faith leaders. And I was already finished with my sermon. And I was like, oh, I could incorporate so much. So I'll just have to save that for another time. Anyway, let me pray for us. God, we love your word, and we believe that you speak through it, that you are alive through it, that you give us instructions for our life, not just morality, but in a spiritual way to give us salvation, to give us a relationship with you. I pray, Lord, for people's hearts this morning to be softened, for their minds to be open to what you have to say to them, whatever that may be. It may be outside of this text. It may be just something that they're going through, but as you are a dynamic, living God, uh, you work in these mysterious ways. In Jesus' name, amen. We're getting closer to Jesus' death on the cross. These last few chapters of Luke They're going to be really challenging, and they're going to be a time for our church to kind of sit and kind of bask in what Jesus did for us. Now, Judas was looking for his opportunity to betray Jesus. The religious leaders were waiting for Judas to kind of give them a sign as to when and and where they were going to ambush him. And throughout all of their plotting, Jesus was well aware that Judas the traitor, was in his midst. Jesus knew what was happening in the background with Judas and and these religious leaders, but that wasn't going to alter his course. He knew why he was in Jerusalem, and that was to fulfill the plan of salvation for those who have faith in him, and that his death on the cross would be a sacrifice to atone for our sins. Satan tried everything possible to alter God's plan. He entered Judas back in verse 3. And because Judas did not submit himself to God, he invited, he welcomed the devil into his life. James chapter 4 verse 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Judas did not do that. 
We also know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. Romans 8.28 So we don't have to worry about Satan entering into us or the evils of this world. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with Thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And this is exactly what Jesus was doing in his last days. He's about to die, and he knows this. And what do we find him doing in our text today? He's hanging out and eating with his friends. Verse 7, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus is my kind of guy. He likes to eat. Yeah, what would we find ourselves doing, you know, knowing that, you know, hours from now we're going to die? What will we do? I'd probably worry. I'd probably be anxious. And not just for ourselves, but even, you know, for my family, for my kids, for future generations, my children. And I had to stop myself because I had to think about, you know, God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's the same. Is there going to be something worse than Satan? Because I hear people saying this all the time. I worry about my kids' generation. Oh, my kids. They have to deal things that we've never had to deal with. All the technology that we have nowadays, and they're growing up a lot faster, and all these the internet and all this kind of stuff. And for me, I'm just thinking, are you kidding? What I hear more and what I see more is that kids are growing up slower. Really? Slower. It's not that I'm rushing my kids out of the house. It's this. People are getting married later in life, are they not? Look at the sociological studies. It's true. Kids are having kids later in life. I would even argue this, and I don't know this for a fact, but there are more 40-plus-year-old single people living with mommy and daddy than there were back then. I'm just saying. So I think they're growing up slower. I don't think they're growing up faster. And you know what? Every generation, every generation thinks that the generation coming up after them has it worse. Every generation. Think about this, right? Parents in the 20s, they're known as the lost generation. They were worried about the next generation because that generation gave birth to a generation that called themselves the greatest generation. I would worry about their humility also. But I would. But they were called the greatest generation because they fought in World War II. They came of age during the Great Depression. So that's why they're called the greatest generation. After the greatest generation was the silent generation. And so the silent generation, they were worried because how are they going to fare after the aftermath of the Great Depression? How are these guys going to make it? Then came the baby boomers, right? The baby boom generation. And so their parents are worried because of rock and roll and the hippies, and the Vietnam War, and cool styles, and counterculture at its peak during this time. And so the generations before them were worried. And then came Gen X, Generation X, me. And my bell-bottom wearing parents thought, what did we do to our kids? What did we do? And then after Gen X are the millennials, I think most of you. 
And your parents are worried because you guys face the biggest global financial crisis ever in history in terms of unemployment. There's estimated to be 1.2 billion jobs in the world. What's the population of the world? Seven. Crazy, right? So your parents are worried about unemployment and what are my kids going to do? And student loan levels are the highest ever. They're in the trillions of dollars. It's more than auto loan debts and credit card debts combined. And so they're worried about these things. And then there's Generation Z, or the I generation, the Internet generation, the pluralist generation, my kids. I worry about them. I worry about them because I'm worried that they're going to get carpal tunnel at their early age because they they do this uh, and this and this and all this stuff, right? Because we have like iPhones and iTouches and iPads, which creates the I broke. And so... So, you know, I I worry about that. I worry about these things, their little hands. I'm like, oh, by middle school, forget it. I'm going to start a business with this stuff for them. I'm going to, yeah. Anyway, it just came. Thank you, God. Thank you. Point is, God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's the same. And He is sufficient to deal with anything at any time. So, really, what's the worry? What's the worry? And this was Jesus, even though people wanted to kill him, even though one of his closest friends was looking to betray him, and he was going to die this excruciating, painful death on a cross. And what do we find him doing? He's preparing for the Passover feast so he could hang out with his friends one last time. And it just goes to show you how important relationships, friendships, people, his disciples are to him. And if you knew you were about to be betrayed by one of your closest friends and that you were going to be killed, how would you go about your last hours? Would you hang out with him? Would you hang out with that guy? Would you be planning a a feast and, and being with the very one that was going to betray you? And that's what we find Jesus doing because I think Jesus was hopeful. And he was just hoping, Judas, please change your mind. Please repent. Please don't do this. I think Jesus was for him. And he did all of that because of love. This is why he did this. It's out of love. John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. Verse 8, So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. Two out of the three disciples who were in Jesus' inner circle. The three who witnessed the transfiguration, excluding James, it was only Peter and John, they were recruited to go and make preparations for the Passover meal. They'd go off to, you know, kosher Costco, and they'd go and they'd buy this delicious-looking lamb. Like, hey, that lamb looks good. Sorry, vegetarians, but that's what they ate. And so they get the other foodstuffs, and so they get some unleavened matzahs and bitter herbs and karoses. I don't know if that stuff's delicious. It's just like this mixture of like nuts and apples and, and wine, and it's all gooey and it's just it's just heavenly. And roasted eggs and vegetables like parsley and celery because they would use that to dip in the salted water and 
kind of taste like the tears and stuff. So food was this a really big part of this preparation. But another big part of it was the venue. Where? Where was this going to be held? Verse 9. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? They asked this because they didn't have an office. They didn't have a church. They didn't have a headquarter. Right? So they're like, All right, Jesus, cool. We're going to have a Passover meal, but where? Where are we going to eat? Remember, Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 58 Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So Peter and John, they're just curious as to, Jesus, what, what do you have in mind? What, what do you want us to do? Verses 10 through 12 He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. So Jesus gives this great detail to these two guys as to what to look for. And Jesus explained to them you know, what to look for, what to do, and what to say. And Peter and John just asked, where? Jesus goes off with this elaborate plan of identifying their location for the Passover. Now why would Jesus not just give the location? Go here. This address, or this building, or whatever. Why would Jesus tell them to look for a man carrying a jar of water? Wouldn't that be like saying, go into Oakland and look for the guy with saggy pants? Like, you'd need more detail, like uh, printed boxers, or plain, like, you need more detail, right? You, you, like, uh, what, I don't know what to do. But a guy carrying a jar of water? How are we going to narrow that down? It's Passover. People are carrying stuff all the time. Huh? This is how. Jesus is brilliant. Identifying a man carrying a jar of water was actually going to be really easy. Because that task was typically for a woman. So, easily carried out. No pun intended. And back in this day, women would carry the jar of water you know, on their head. And men would carry the wineskin. I know, really chivalrous, right? You carry a big jar of water. Hard and heavy and big. And men carry small, soft wineskin. Such gentlemen back then. So this guy was doing a woman's task, a a task that's not typical for him at all. And maybe some of you find yourselves in his shoes. What you're doing in service to God doesn't feel significant to you or you don't think the opportunities for you to serve God are right for you. And maybe what you're currently doing seems pointless or purposeless to you. Maybe you're even withholding service to God because ways in which you can serve seem minimal or outside of your gifting or they're just not personally beneficial to you. You're not looking out for the community. You're looking out for more for yourself, so you don't want to do certain things. Whatever you do in service to God, it is relevant and it is significant. So if you're not serving in some capacity for whatever reason, I encourage you to serve. Serve. It's important. It's relevant. It's not that you do something and it's not insignificant or whatever. It is. Your service is valuable and important even though you may think that it isn't. 
or think that it's of no benefit to you personally or think that it's of no benefit to people in the community. God has a purpose for all who serve him, even a guy carrying a jug of water that wasn't supposed to be him. I mean, he did something awesome. He led them to the Last Supper, carrying a jar of water. Do something. Something. Verse 13, And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Peter and John were told to follow the guy with the jar of water into the house he enters and to tell the master of the house those verses. Who's this master? Who is this guy? And whose house is this? Well, many scholars believe that this house is that of John Mark's parents. So, why wouldn't Jesus just say, let's eat at John Mark's parents' house? Why wouldn't he just do that? Why, why all the you know, cloak and dagger stuff and find the man with a jar on his head with the water and follow him into his home? And why all that stuff? Because Judas is with him. Judas is with him. Judas Iscariot, Luke 22, verse 6, he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Jesus knew that there was a traitor in the midst, that he was looking for this opportunity. And so if he said, you know what, prepare the Passover meal, we're going to go to John Mark's house. That would be in the absence of a crowd. And so those guys would just kind of convene there and they would take Jesus from there. So Jesus did not want that. Like, why not? Was Jesus scared? Was he afraid of them? I don't think so. I think it just wasn't time. It was time for him to be with his disciples, people that he loved dearly one last time, and he wanted this uninterrupted time to share this very significant and meaningful meal with them. And so he kind of did it in this way so that no one else would know except for Peter and John, and everyone else would just kind of figure it out when they got there. Verses 14 and 15. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I want to point out that word earnestly because he didn't just say, I desire. He earnestly desired. He, he really wanted this time with them. He was longing, craving for this time with them. And this is God with us. This is God with you. God, who rose people from the dead, who calmed the storm, who healed lepers, He gave sight to the blind. This is the same God, Jesus, who performed those miracles and He wanted to live out His last hours with His followers. Isn't that incredible? Out of everything that He could have done, He wants to have this last meal with them. He could have done anything. right? But He wanted to live out His last hours with them because He loved them until the end. He loves you like this. He earnestly desires to have a relationship with you. He wants this. He longs to be your friend. He craves to be your Savior, to save you from your sin. All of us have sinned. Have we not? I can point out one sin that all of us are guilty of. Lying. In all of your life, have you lied? And if you're shaking your head no, there's your first lie. Right? That's it. So all of us have sinned. We've all sinned. So you think of that one sin and you multiply it by the years that you've lived in this life and the days you've lived by this life. And one of those things, one sin, separates you from God who is holy, who is righteous, who is just. 
you believe in justice. You do. And we're like God in that way. And if that justice is carried out in us, we have no relationship with Him. We are separated from Him. That's where Jesus comes in. Jesus bridges us to God by paying for our sin and makes possible a relationship with God. And we're going to get to that in a little bit more as it's going to be shown in the Passover meal. Now, why would anyone want a relationship with God? Why? He's the author of love, of beauty, of forgiveness, of peace, of justice, of joy, of kindness, of hope. You will be separated. You will not have access to the author of those things, all that which is good, without Jesus. And God doesn't want that. God wants to give us His presence, and yet so many don't want it. Jesus wants so badly to be with you. He said in John chapter 14, verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. God wants a relationship with you. He loves you. He loves you. And he longs to be with you. And you know what I find unbelievable? Is that he knows everything about you. Every dark thought that you've had. Every sinister thing that you've done. Every venomous thing that you've said. He knows all of it and yet he loves you so deeply that he longs to be with you still. After all that stuff. That's nuts to me. That's crazy to me. And he proved that in Judas. He's right there. He knows all this stuff about Judas, and yet he still wants a relationship with him. He wants that with him. Now, why are you here? Do you know that there is a living God who earnestly desires to be with you? And it's not about being religious. It's about connecting to God, and how is that possible? Jesus. That's it. It's only Jesus. John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's it. So Jesus spent his last living hours with his disciples, celebrating the Passover to show them his love. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the Passover, it's a celebration of God's deliverance for his people from the oppression of Egypt. And that's what this meal is celebrating. And it's found in the book of Exodus, chapters 7 through 12, where God's people were held as captives, as slaves. And Moses went to Pharaoh to seek their freedom. Pharaoh wouldn't free them as God commanded. And so God sent plagues. And plague after plague, Pharaoh wouldn't let God's people free. And then came this plague of killing the firstborn. The firstborn of everything. Livestock, humans. And so God gave instructions to Moses and Aaron on how to take some of the blood from an unblemished lamb, a sacrificial lamb, and to put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the doorway of the home. So when the Lord passed through to strike the Egyptians, He would see the blood on the lintel and the doorposts. And He would pass over that home, that door, and not destroy the firstborn within those homes. And it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for He passed over the houses of people of Israel in Egypt when He struck the Egyptians, but spared their houses. And so this was this annual celebration 
since that time to this very day. Till today. A celebration of God's deliverance of His people from slavery when He passed over the house of those who were saved, who were spared by the blood of an unblemished lamb on the doorposts and on the lintels. So Jesus told His disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover, the one that was right before them, with you before I suffer. Verse 16, For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Everything expected from the Passover was fulfilled in Jesus. The exodus led by Moses from Egypt was fulfilled in Jesus' exodus from earth. So this was spoken about at the transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, verses 28-31. through 31. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now that word departure in verse 31 is exodus in the Greek. In Jesus' death was the fulfillment of the Passover. The deliverance from this unblemished lamb was from bondage to freedom. Just as the deliverance by Jesus' blood is from the bondage of sin into everlasting freedom with God. So the reason for Jesus' lifeblood was to fulfill the departure, the exodus from the bondage of sin. You see the parallels? Let's go on reading 17 through 20 here. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my blood which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now there is some confusion here in regards to the material elements of communion, namely the fruit of the vine and the bread. There are some who hang their spiritual security, their spiritual salvation on this sacrament of the Lord's Supper, communion, Eucharist, whatever you call it. That nothing or little else matters as long as this one thing is performed. There are others on the other side of that belief that don't make this sacrament something of significance. It's just, yeah, that was then, you know, we just do it. Communion doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. Communion does not. Communion is not this propitiatory event. It is a celebratory event. Right? Christ's death on the cross was done once and for all. You don't earn salvation by religiously taking communion. Jesus did that. And so to fully understand communion, we need to get some background on the Passover meal itself. Some of us are familiar with the Passover Seder, which we often celebrate here at Regeneration. And the Passover meal is celebrated with four glasses of wine that are consumed during the celebration. We use grape juice in ours, so don't freak out that each person at our Seder drinks a bottle of wine. But each glass of wine represents the promise of redemption. So there's four glasses. The first one is drunk before the food. 
Then the patriarch of the family, was typically the father, would tell the Exodus story. They would sing Psalms 113 to 115. Then they would drink the second glass of wine. So a long time before drinks, so people weren't plastered at this meal and stuff, right? I mean, this is a long time. Telling the Exodus story, a long time. And singing those Psalms, and some time goes on. Then the patriarch would give thanks. He would break the unleavened bread, the matzah. And he would give it to everyone at the meal. And then this part of the meal was to be done in silence. No talking. This was to be reflective and thinking about this thing. But what did Jesus do? Verse 19. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying. Jesus spoke at this part of the meal that was customarily silent. And he said something really profound. He said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the disciples must have just been wondering, what is going on? Did he forget the script? I mean, what's going on? Because these guys have participated in dozens of Passover meals, and no one has ever spoken at this part of the meal. I'm like, what's he doing? This is really weird. No one speaks during this. This doesn't happen. What is he doing? Why they? But Jesus wanted to make something really clear to them. That he was the Passover bread. What was this bread? This was the afikomen. Right? This was the second matzah out of the three that was taken out and broken. This is symbolic of a spiritual truth. There are three sleeves. It's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The middle one is taken out. Still divine, the broken half. Jesus incarnate, fully human. So, that one broken. One broken from that Trinitarian relationship for a not yet aspect. Still fully God, still fully man. That broken piece, hidden, wrapped in a cloth, and put away. What is that a picture of? Jesus' death. He was wrapped in a cloth. He was put away. Later to be discovered, right? That hidden matzah would be discovered, and then that one would be shared with everyone. Jesus is shared with everyone. That gospel is shared with everyone. Taken out, discovered, shared with everyone. And so you see the picture of Jesus within the Passover meal. And he was using this Passover bread as a picture, a symbol of himself. Because it wasn't literally him. Because he's there. Right? It's not like it was like exchanging like the bread and Jesus. And like, oh, me here. It's not literally Him. It is symbolically Him because He's right there. It's not morphing in between those two stages of material things or matter. It's symbolic of what has literally happened. So one of the important things to keep in mind in communion is that we are to focus on Jesus, not the elements. We're to focus on Jesus. So the early disciples didn't think that the bread and the wine were literally Jesus' flesh and blood. They didn't think that. That theological idea didn't come about until over a thousand years later. Over a thousand years later. None of the early Christians believed that. 
And so the bread and the wine were, they are symbols of Jesus. They don't literally change into Him. And the focus is on the giver, Jesus, not what was given, the elements. And Jesus is to be worshipped, not the elements of communion. Now back to the meal. After the meal, the third glass of wine would be drunk. There would be a blessing. Psalms 116 through 118 would be sung. And after this is the final cup of wine to be drank. And this is the background of verse 20. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus drank the previous three cups of wine, but not the fourth cup. Verse 18. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So in the order of the drinking of the wine, Jesus would have partaken of the glasses of wine, the first, second, and third, but not the fourth. And in verse 20, he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He drunk the third one in verse 20, but the fourth one is reserved for when we are with him. And he's waiting for us. He's waiting for our arrival. He left that last one sitting because there was going to be one epic party at his second coming. In the meantime, we take communion until that party of parties happens. He's going to partake of that fourth cup with us. Now, the the Passover meal points to redemption and deliverance by blood. It's a meal of historic remembrance of what God did in the past. An old covenant of how the blood of the unblemished lamb on the lintel and on the doorposts delivered them from death and bondage. A lamb's blood was shed, covered the doorposts and the lintel. You see this sign happening here. All right? And the Lord passed over those homes because they were covered by the blood of the sacrificial lamb. That blood was what allowed them to live and gain freedom into the promised land. And the Jews celebrate that until this day. Jesus gives us a new covenant. Give a new covenant to His disciples. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in My blood. All the Jews knew the story of the old covenant exodus. All of them. Even to this day. But they didn't know that the old covenant exodus was pointing to the new covenant in Jesus' exodus to provide us a way to our promised land to be in the presence of God. There was a lamb that was sacrificed where the blood of that lamb delivered them from bondage in the old covenant. But in the new covenant, Jesus, the lamb of God, would be sacrificed on a cross. Sign of the lintel and the doorpost, right? And his blood would cover all those who faithfully believed what he did for them in terms of taking the sins away from them, to take away the sins of the world, to set them free from the bondage of sin Drinking this cup was a sign of the new covenant in communion with Jesus, that they understood things have changed. It's not about that exodus to the promised land from Moses anymore. This is about Jesus taking us to the promised land to the presence of God. The new covenant is Jesus as the sacrificial lamb. John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The sacrifice Jesus made with His blood provided us a new exodus. The shedding of blood in the Old Testament made it possible for freedom from slavery. And the shedding of Jesus' blood in the New Covenant makes it possible for the freedom from the bondage of sin. To set sinners free and we have all sinned. right? We've all lied. And Jesus took us sinners to Himself and freed us from the bondage of sin. 
So why do we have communion? Because it's communion with Jesus. Jesus instructed us to do this in remembrance of me. Now what do you do when someone you love asks you to do something? Granted, it's not immoral, it's not unethical, and it's not illegal. What do you do if it's not one of those three things? You do it. Right? You typically do it. It's your anniversary. What do you do? What what do you do? You you celebrate. Typically a meal, right? Typically a dinner. Not all the time, but you use something that is celebratory. Let's just say that it is a meal, though. So you remember the day that you were married to your spouse, and you're at that meal, and you're celebrating the union that you guys made however many years ago. I'm coming up on 10. So this is a cool one for me. We're going to do something awesome. So it's similar here in this communion, right? It's a celebration. It's a remembrance of when you acknowledge that Jesus set you free from the bondage of sin. It's your anniversary. It's your anniversary meal. And no one can stand in your place. Can you imagine at your anniversary you send your best friend? My wife will understand. She'll understand. I need to work. You go do that. You can't do that. You got to show up. Right? You have to show up. You can't send your best friend or anyone else to your anniversary. You got to show up. And so you're there. And so it has to be you. You have to show up. You acknowledge that you are set free from sin. You got to show up. So when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, you can decide not to. Not like he's going to pull you by the ear and you better show up to that anniversary meal. You can choose not to. But the thing is, is if you don't show up, that is really telling of your relationship, isn't it? You have an anniversary meal set up, you know it's your anniversary, and you don't show up. What does that say about your relationship to your spouse? You don't care. You don't value. It's not important. And it's similar here. You have communion and you don't show up. It's really telling of your relationship with Jesus. How things are going on between you and God. The other side of it is, I'm not saying that you go ahead and you partake of communion if things aren't going well between you and God. Say you're harboring unforgiveness or bitterness or resentment or something's just not right. You're just habitually in sin and you don't really care if you get out of it or not. It's not a time to come take communion just to be religious. It's time for you to work on the relationship, just like your marriage. You don't just kind of just show up to the anniversary dinner and just pretend like everything's fine and eat, and then you go away again, and then everything's back to the same thing. You have to deal with it. You have to talk with your spouse. You've got to deal with stuff. You don't dismiss it. Now, what if you find yourself this morning unable to partake in communion? Deal with it. Talk with God. Pray. Find out what's going on. Because what's even more serious is if you come to the communion table hypocritically. Because imagine a spouse who shows up at that anniversary dinner pretending that everything is great, and that spouse even thinks, oh, you know, everything's great, I'm here, and well, everything's going fine, but they know full well that after the meal they're going to be hooking up with their adulterous affair. 
that there's really no intent on changing, there's no intent on being any different, but I'm going to play this kind of game here and, and kind of show everyone else around me, hey, yeah, I'm good, I'm good, but right after you go out of these doors, it's back to the same old self. Don't do this religiously. Don't have communion with God if your heart's not in it. This is an intimate time. This is a time to acknowledge the sacrifice that he's made for you, to have a relationship with you. It's a time to celebrate. It's a time to remember the relationship you have with Jesus. Not the elements, but Jesus himself, what he has done for you in the new covenant, setting you free from sin. In Jesus' death, there was an exodus from the bondage of sin. And when we take communion, we are to remember our Savior who delivered us from the bondage of sin and into everlasting freedom with Him. We take communion in remembrance of Jesus until He returns. Until we can partake of that fourth cup with Him, face to face. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for this symbolic, celebratory sacrament that is just a very tangible way for us to experience, to feel an exodus, an exodus from the bondage of sin. Lord, I pray that people who partake in communion this morning, Lord, that their relationship with you is in the right place. Not that we're perfect, because none of us are. But Lord, if there is something that is preventing us from partaking in communion, that we would deal with that, that we wouldn't just kind of let that slide, but that there would be a fair amount of introspection to look into our spiritual lives and to really ask why, why not. Lord, I pray for your blessing upon the people here. I pray, God, for those who do not know you, as their Passover lamb, as their sacrificial lamb. God, may you open their hearts, soften their hearts and their minds to receive you. In Jesus' name, amen.